back to the everybodysuffers.com podcast. Everybody suffers, so how can I pray for you? I'm Carl Brown, and my hope is that through this podcast, I can help you make sense out of suffering or so that you can share consolation with someone else. Today's episode is the second interview with the mystic next door, Ed Joza, who wrote a book about his experience uh, after a terrible car accident. In our first episode, he, he shared a story from growing up, and he's going he's gonna to share some more with us today, and it's, it's going to be a great episode. And the benefit for you, the listener, is going to be that Ed is going to peel back the curtain between time and eternity, give us a glimpse into the reality of the spiritual life. This episode is sponsored by Our Lady of Kibeho. Kibeho, Rwanda was the site of the most recent major church-approved apparition of our Blessed Mother. She warned us of the genocide in Rwanda of 1994, and she reintroduced us to the Seven Sorrows Rosary. And Mary gave the warning for Rwanda more than 10 years before the genocide, which she confirmed by predicting the death and resurrection of three of the visionaries in Rwanda. And the warning she gave was a warning not just for Rwanda, but for the whole world. So what will you do now? Will you pray the rosary every day as she asked? Or will you one day regret not having done enough to prevent what she warned us about? And the first seven episodes of this podcast are full recitations of the Seven Sorrows Rosary with a different intention or set of reflections for each. So before we begin the podcast, let's just ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Lord, you send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, help me to say only what you want me to say. Make me forget whatever it is you don't want me to say. And open the ears of our listeners for them to hear what you want them to hear. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, welcoming back to our podcast Ed Joza. Ed, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, it's good to be here again, Carl. Always enjoy it. It's great talking with you. Yeah, and Ed and I haven't talked much. So you, you, as you're driving in your car or you're on a treadmill or on a, on a bike somewhere, Ed and I have only talked a couple times. So I'm happy to share with you that this these conversations that we're having because I'm getting a lot from talking with Ed and I hope that you do too as you listen to this podcast. So Ed, you shared with us an amazing experience in last episode uh, when you were a lifeguard and still years before you had the car accident experience, you had another mystical experience that involved the carved crucifix. Tell us about that story. Yeah, so this would have happened just like maybe three years after the the lifeguard story. And growing up in western Pennsylvania, we lived in an area where there was a Catholic church on 
literally every corner. And this was in one of those areas and just so happened to be this Catholic church was a church that one of my cousins was a parishioner of. Now I say he was a cousin. He was married to my mother's first cousin. They were like sisters and he was a little older than her. So he would have been more like an older uncle, but he was a cousin to me. So, so he was an older guy, right? Like I was a kid and this guy was probably in his fifties by then, which I laugh older guy. <laughs> it doesn't seem so old now, but he was an artist. He, he had an art studio. He was a really talented artist. And right before Lent of that particular year, they needed to have their crucifix behind the altar. You know, the, it was a big crucifix that, that hung behind the, the altar. They wanted to have it refurbished in time for the Lenten season, well, at least for Easter. And so he took that on pro bono and they took it down and it was really big. It was so big that it didn't fit in his art studio. So he had it in his garage and our families were close. So we visited all the time. And I remember going over as as probably maybe 17 or 18 at, at the time when this was happening, going over and he'd be working on it when we got there. And it was big. I mean, like it was really big. You, when you're standing next to one of those big crucifixes that's behind the altar of those, you know, this is an old church built in the 1800s. And so it was one of those absolutely stunningly beautiful churches, old old world craftsmanship. This cross was massive. And Jesus, the corpus was just life-size. And I remember him talking about how difficult it was. So this was a really rare crucifix where Jesus's eyes were open. And I never paid attention, but Dominic being an artist said that most crucifixes, Jesus's eyes are closed. And he was struggling tremendously. The color of Jesus's eyes was such a unique color that that's what he spent actually most of his time was trying to match and make a color of the original eyes, the way they were painted. And so this took weeks, if not months, for him to do. And so I'd seen him working on this repeatedly. And they got it up in time for Holy Week. It was reinstalled back into the church. And during the Good Friday Mass, a miracle happened. So remember, I said that the eyes were open, and during the Mass, the two—I'm sorry, it's not a Mass, during the service on Good Friday, the— the altar boys were sort of making a commotion because they saw something, right? After the service, the priest went to sort of, you know, chastise them that they were talking so much on the altar during one of the holiest hours, right? They said, Father, Jesus's eyes are closed. And he he said, what? You know, and he he turns around and he looks, and sure enough, Jesus's eyes, which were open for probably a hundred years, were closed. And so Dominic actually was at that service. And that was my cousin. And the priest called him up and said, Dominic, what did you do? Did you, did you paint the eyes closed? And he said, no, I didn't. Because as a matter of fact, he goes, that's what took so long was matching the color of the eyes. And he goes, you couldn't paint them closed anyways. They're not, they're, they're formed they They were sculpted open. So there's no way to paint them closed. And, and he said, the eyes are closed. So Dominic looked from down on the ground and and it did. It looked like they were closed. So he, he said, give me a ladder. And so they got an extension ladder and put it up and Dominic climbed up. And I remember him telling this story firsthand. He said he got up there and the eyes were closed. The statue of Jesus, the corpus of Jesus, who was formed, was crafted with the eyes open. Those eyes were now closed. And so 
while all this is going on, right, the a bystander, another another parishioner that was at the service approached a priest. He has no idea what's going on, right? He has no idea. He doesn't know what the commotion is all about. And he tells the priest, I have to tell you, I got a message during I got a message during the service that that people are going to come from all around to see God's image and that we are to be welcoming and to not be frustrated and to welcome them and to be very hospitable. And so he had no idea what was happening, but it would end up that people did come from all around for for like a year in the line that poor that poor church that poor congregation i can't imagine the line would be out the door 24/7 it never ended i can't imagine you know we we all work and do things for our churches and it's all run on volunteer time right and now somebody's got to be there 24/7 and somebody's got to be there to you know i i just can't even imagine the hardship that that church went through but hundreds of thousands of people if not more came to see that right and and i had always wanted to go i maybe i was a doubter right it's like i saw that thing maybe it was a curiosity i don't know at the, at the time I, i'm i was dating my my girlfriend who's now my wife just the same girl from the other story and we waited for the crowds to die down and then we finally went about a year later and stood in a line for hours and when I got up there, the way they had it sort of cordoned off, you couldn't go up onto the altar space, and, and it was really kind of far away. And I couldn't quite see what was what was happening. What I couldn't see what, what were the eyes open or closed. They looked closed, but you, I wanted to see it closer, and I couldn't. And we left, and I didn't think anything of it until that night. And I had a dream, and it was probably the first dream that, again, my dogs are very excited about this. If you can hear them in the background, they're fighting each other. So I wanted to, I have I have this dream, and it was the first experience that I had of an otherworldly dream. And I've learned the dreams that we have that are placed in our mind by God or the enemy are particularly clear. They do not fade. They're very detailed, and we remember them in ways that we don't remember other dreams. And and here I am in my 50s, remembering a dream from when I was 18 or 19 years old, like it happened just moments ago. But I'm at that altar, and the extension ladder is up. And I want to see for myself the eyes. And so I climb the ladder. And then something happens as I'm climbing it, I kind of look down through the rungs of the ladder. And it's not a red carpeting anymore that, that the ladder is sitting on. It's it's sort of a dusty, a dusty ground, like a, a sandy, powdery, dusty ground, rocky. And, and there's old tools. There's there's an old wooden table with tools on it. There's a bucket with like hammer, a, a, a mallet. There, there's all kinds of tools that I'm looking at. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it, it makes no sense. And as I climb closer up, it, it is... With every step that I get up, it gets darker and darker, and there, like, it sinks into a darkness that that is just otherworldly. And I realize that it—I it, I don't know how I know it, but it's an eclipse, and it and it's darkened, and I'm no longer inside; I'm outside. And as I get to the cross member, the cross beam of of the cross, where the bladder is is resting on. I noticed that it's not porcelain or ceramic, whatever that, whatever that giant cross was 
crafted from in Dominic's garage. This is an old beat up wooden beam, big. And I'm very confused by it all. And I look to my right to look at Jesus. I want to see his eyes and I see something that just absolutely blows me away. It shocks me. You know, we look at these crucifixes that hang in the churches and we see this pristine, skinny man, just so clean, maybe a little tiny bit of blood on him. But that's not what I saw. The first thing I saw was an arm that was big. It was a big arm. It was muscular. Big arm that went to a big chest. You know, and it made me think, Jesus was a craftsman. Jesus was a carpenter. I mean, you look at carpenters today that have power tools, and they got pretty jacked arms, don't they? They're, they're muscular because they work hard. But man, back in the day, Jesus didn't have power tools, so he worked like 100 times harder than the craftsmen of today. He wouldn't have been a skinny, frail man. He worked his whole life. He would have been a muscular man. And that's what I saw. I saw, I saw this muscular man, and he, his skin was, was like olive colored, like it was a darker color skin. It wasn't white like we always see, but it was, there was also something to it that it, it looked gray. It looked, um, it looked like it, it looked like he bled out. He, he looked like he had lost a lot of blood. Like you could tell he was discolored. And then I looked to his face and he is, he's covered in mud and blood he had he had like a, a curlier hair and the mud and blood were just caked into the the crown of thorns and his face his his eyes were swollen his 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 left eye was open j- just a little bit and his right eye was fully closed it, it was swollen shut b- blood dripping off of him and it, just every mark of his body was filthy and bloody and 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 his head was hanging down. And as I look at him in, in, in absolute utter shock, he he lifts up, he pushes with his legs, and he he takes in this horrible sounding gasp of air. It just sounds excruciatingly painful. And then he roars out, Why are you persecuting me? And then I I literally I slide down the ladder like I like a fireman slide. I'm petrified I, I i hit the ground and i wake up and my heart is beating a thousand beats a minute and i'm covered in sweat and i thought oh my god that was jesus like that was real and you know i i i told my wife well my girlfriend at the time i i told her about that dream you know considering that we had just went there that day and how strange it was and how real it seemed and how like the details like i could i can remember the grain of wood of the mallet like i remember it and uh, and so i didn't think anything of it again i i i look back and i think about how stubborn how foolish how naive wh- whatever it was like why didn't i think about that really ever again and i and, and i thought about it after after my wreck, 
after my wreck, I had several surgeries even after I got out of the hospital. For, for years, I would continue to have surgeries about every other month. And I decided that pain medicine, I hated taking it so much. And there was such good in suffering, right? Redemptive suffering, think, something I didn't know about, but I would learn about in all of this. I decided that after my surgeries, I wouldn't take pain medicine. And it happened to be that I, I had a surgery during Lent that this year later in life. And I, I was reading a book, The Delorious Passion by Sister Anne Emmerich. And it's another one of the books that they use as reference for the Passion of the Christ. I didn't, I didn't know that until after I read the book. But in it, she describes Jesus and what he looked like on the cross. And she describes him like word for word what I just wrote. And when I read that, I mean, like this dream came back to me, the dream I had not thought about in 30 years, more maybe. It came back to me again, and I thought, oh my gosh, I... I saw what she saw. I mean, down to the minutest detail. And then like even the fact, something that I didn't understand when I had the dream. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a kid. I'm 19, 18, 19 years old. I didn't understand that the, it, the act of crucifixion makes you decide what pain you will suffer, right? Like if you want to breathe, you, you can't the way you're hanging. So you have to push yourself up with your feet, right? It's exactly what he did. Now, how would I have known that? How would I have dreamt that as a kid, never knowing, but I watched the actual action that Jesus would have had to do and the way he inhaled and the way that he exhaled that, that question to me was, I mean, it was exactly what would have had to happen. And so I look at it, you know, after the fact, I, I, I still don't know why he asked me. Was it doubt? You know, I I, I tend to be a, a stubborn man of little faith. And, you know, I saw my cousin working for months on that thing. I had seen it up close. I've touched it. But I maybe I didn't believe that his eyes could close, right? Maybe I couldn't believe that that miracle could happen. And so I wanted to see it up close. And even when I did go and I and I did visit, I didn't get to see it close enough. I didn't get to get up there close enough to touch it. But then the Lord let me get close enough to touch him. And something I've thought about, about how he looked, about how big he was, how strong he was. Right? He was a he was a muscular, strong man. And we always they depict Jesus as this real meek looking guy, right? Like, like deputy dog meek. But see, there's no appeal to that. And what I mean by that is, if you're going to go and stand in front of crowds, and you're going to preach a message of peace, if you're some skinny, weak guy that looks like a, a the wind is going to blow you over, it's very easy for people to discount it and say, well, of course you're going to speak about peace because you could never make war, right? I mean, there's a thing about that. See, but Jesus wasn't that. Like, I'm, Jesus was a, was a muscle, muscular man. He was a worker, man. His hands were rough and he had arms and chest and legs because he was lifting and stuff. He was a big, strong-looking man. And so when a big, strong-looking man, I mean, think of present day, like, you know, like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, right? I mean, what if he had a movie with this big muscle man that was, he was there saying, hey, we got to turn the other cheek. We got to be peaceful. We got to love each other, right? Like that, that catches you because you say, wow, what a, 
what a conflicting thought. You know, this man could rip you limb from limb, and yet he's preaching peace, right? That grabs you. Of course, God would, you know, he, he designed us. He knows how our psyches work. He knows that people are, they are drawn to a strong, powerful man, right? And then when a strong, powerful man says these messages that are like nothing else that we've ever heard, that's, it hooks us, right? And, you know, I've pondered this dream now for years, and I think about it. I, I still question his question to me, and I, I pray that if I were ever to see him again, he wouldn't need to ask me that, that same thing. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, and it's amazing that you can have a dream that's still so vivid 30-some years later, and there's so much to unpack from what you're sharing with us. And and one of the one of the things that strikes me is the the line from Hebrews: Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that that Jesus is not sacrificed again, but that in the Eucharist, it's a representation of the sacrifice on the cross. And what you saw there was was that ever present sacrifice of Christ on behalf of our sins and that's that's really worth contemplating and as I am sharing the seven sorrows with people that's the fifth sorrow Mary standing at the foot of the cross which was the greatest triumph of humanity that Mary who is watching her son be killed can stand and witness to her faith and console the beloved disciple and Mary Magdalene, and that she did not give in to the temptation to choose the, the, the rotten fruit, which would have been malice or anger or, or revenge, but forgiveness and compassion and love. And then the other thing that really strikes me as you're sharing this is the description of the body of Christ. Because when I first started praying the seven sorrows rosary, I was using a prayer from Pius VII. And when it got to the sixth sorrow, Pius says, I grieve for you, O Mary, most sorrowful, in the wounding of your compassionate heart, when the side of Jesus was struck by the lance before his body was removed from the cross. And that's Pope Pius VII's way of setting up a short reflection on Mary receiving the dead body of Jesus into her arms, the Pieta. But when I lead the Seven Sars Rosary, the focus that I want to bring to people is that that was, that was Mary's first communion. So I say the oh. sixth sorrow, Mary receives the body of Christ and that she does not receive the body of Christ the way we do, which is just this perfect, lily-white, spotless host, but that Mary received the body of Christ and then counted his wounds and cleaned his body and clothed him in a garment to, to put him in the tomb. We have to look past that lily-white corpse on a cross and see that that was pure agony for Jesus and it was an, an agony on our behalf. And then the, the other thing that's so striking about your story, Ed, is 
the question, why do you persecute me? Because Paul got that same question, but Paul was breathing murderous threats against the Christians. Yeah. And you didn't share much of the backstory, but I'm guessing you were not <laughs> killing G- Christians at the time, right? No, no, no. But, you know, we, as Christians, we have been blessed, right? Chris, current day Christians, right? We, we can't even count the number of saints that have come before us that have written, right? We have the scripture that has, has been written and recorded and studied and theologians have poured over it and explained it and right we have so much knowledge about our lord if we choose to use it right and i was an adult right i was 18 or 19 technically right i'm an adult i was doing nothing to to further my faith and it and it would continue that way right and at the time of my wreck i was very poorly catechized i was not focused on learning everything I could, submersing myself, submerging myself in everything of the Lord, right? I, I was focused on my life, on what was important to me, on my future. And, you know, maybe, maybe for me, it would be a reoccurring theme of denial. I mean, I, even after the wreck, and I go to these other, this other world, right? And I I see God's world. I come back and I don't necessarily believe it, right? I doubt it. And doubting the Lord, maybe that's a form of persecution, right? We're not. I, I should have come back immediately shouting out on the rooftop, right? And it took a year of my doubt and research before I even started talking about it. So maybe I always was in a form of persecuting him through my own, ignoring it or uh, forgetting about it, right? I mean, he was doing these things throughout my life that I, these these amazing things that I would just bury and not talk about, right? And maybe yeah. that's our call. And we're all called to talk about what the Lord has done for us. He's done great things for each and every one of us. And that's right. if, I, if I could touch just on your the seven sorrows, having exited time, which we're, you know, we'll get to that as we go along in this story, but I, I did exit time more than once. And I understand it in a way, you know, time, time is made for man, not for God. God lives outside of time. God views all of it. He's, he's seen my birth and my death and every point in between, he has seen it already. And so with that understanding that he sees all of time at once, we can all stand at the foot of the cross. We can all pick up that cross with Simon. We can all share in the Last Supper. We can all do that. I mean, simply by knowing, trusting, and believing that in in God, all things are possible, and that because he is outside of time and sees all things at once. You know, the moment while we're sitting here talking about his crucifixion from God's perspective, Jesus is carrying that cross at the same moment. We we can share in that moment, and it it really is nothing more than an attitude change and a change in our heart to to be with Christ in all of those times at His birth, at His first miracle, at His crucifixion, right. at His resurrection. Right? We can be there because God has witnessed it all at the same moment, and so from His perspective, we can be there with Him. 
So that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's a pretty deep thought. Um, yes. But practice it, right? I tell you, so the, I do it when, when I'm at the, when I pray the rosary, I, I try my best to live that moment with Christ. Yeah, that's amazing. And and for our the benefit of our listeners, we're we're beginning the Lenten season, and this episode certainly is an invitation to consider coming face to face with Christ on the on the cross. And we have a couple more episodes scheduled, so make sure to tune in for the next episode because we're gonna we're gonna hear more from Ed about his experiences, his mystical experiences, and we're also going to, uh, we've, we've planned a reflection on the passion through both the, the experiences that, the mystical experiences that Ed has had, but also the physical experiences of, of a car accident. And so, the, so as we round out this episode, the question for you, the listener, is who can you share this episode with? Send them this link. Tell them, that, tell them to listen to it. And tune in for the next episode because it's going to be great. And I'm Carl Brown. This is the EverybodySuffers.com podcast. After all, everybody suffers. So how can I pray for you? You can email me your prayer requests at Carl at EverybodySuffers.com. But either way, I'm going to pray for you. So, And Ed, how can people find your book and how can they get in touch with you if they want to bring you to their parish? So I operate a website presenceofgodencounters.com and I realize that that's hard to remember. So you could also find me at edjoza.com but that's hard to spell. It's it's J O Z S A. So that's hard too. So I made it as easy as I can. The book is called The Mystic Next Door and so I have you can get to my website through the mysticnextdoor.org and and there you can contact me to come speak at your church. You can get my book if if you want to get the book, it's available on Amazon, but I don't I don't charge for the book. I I try to give it away for free. And if you want to make a donation, you can, but that's not necessary. All donations go just to giving away more books and giving away my talk. So I don't charge to do the talk. I don't charge for the book. You can get it at the website, themysticnextdoor.org. And I want to come talk at your church, your prayer group, whatever. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much for being with us here today, Ed. And I'm, I can't wait to share the next episode with our listeners. So let's just close it out and we'll say Our Lady of Cabejo, pray for us. Our Lady of Sorrows, pray for us. Have a great day, everybody. God bless you. God bless. Thank you, Carl.